Objects, said philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, should not touch because they are not alive. You use them, put them back in place, you live among them, they are useful, nothing more. But they touch me, it's unbearable. I'm afraid of being in contact with them as though they were living beasts. After using my mum's old Tupperware containers as grief therapy after she passed away a few years ago, I became fascinated at how and why such a simple piece of plastic could hold so much emotion for me. How could these objects touch me so deeply? So I became overtaken with wonder at how my use of objects owned, used and cherished by her could be so powerful and therapeutic. Why do we invest so much in things? How could a basic, empty plastic container, a mere tool, make us so happy? And surely, in a world crowded with waste, disposability, materialism and hyper-consumerism, investing meaning in objects, in stuff, is part of the problem. And Tupperware, I mean, it's just an empty plastic container bound for landfill, right? Or is it a container of fascinating intergenerational stories? Well, I'm on the road to discovering the answers to these questions, plus a whole world of stories about us. Women, men, people, children, community, food, family, friendship, empowerment, and more. So Sartre, it seems, was onto something. Objects just aren't objects. My name is Megan Spencer, and this is Auspicious Plastic, a podcast. Walk around the corner here. Wow, that's pretty fast. Mm. Yeah, you can't really see it. That's my friend Simon. He just fired a precision, high-tech bow and arrow into a target to show me how it works. Simon's a second-gen bow hunter who lives in regional Victoria with his partner and their two small kids. And since he was a kid himself, Simon's hunted. His late dad used to take him into the Australian bush to hunt rabbits and foxes, with Simon later moving on to feral deer. Bow hunting's a passionate pastime of Simon's, something he takes very seriously and reflects upon. With Australia's feral deer population now at what's been called problem proportions, he's also part of the current movement of hunters who use precision carbonite archery equipment to hunt and kill the animals in the wild, the meat of which they then butcher there and take home to eat. Can we do one more? Yep. So Simon's bow is the precious object we'll be talking about today on Auspicious Plastic. It's a vehicle for a surprising conversation about life, death and the controversial art of hunting. So Simon, you are now holding your precious object. What is this? A compound bow. A crossbow? Are they called? No. Crossbow is totally different. It's like a more of a format of a gun when you pull a trigger and stuff to shoot the uh, crossbows. But this one is based on like your typical traditional bow, but it's a bit more complex with wheels and all that stuff. So based on like a bow and arrow bow. Yep, that's right. What do you use this for? I mainly hunt sort of, I only hunt feral animals. They're sort of just all the introduced species into Australia. Sort of help keep numbers of them down. I started off as a young kid. Uh, Dad introduced me to it. I was about four or five years old, I suppose, and we used to go out chasing rabbits and stuff with them. Probably shot oh, a good few hundred rabbits over the years with the bow. 
progressed to sort of foxes and stuff like that. Foxes, pigs and deer these days is what I mainly chase. And when you started off as a kid, did you use a compound bow or was it something else back no, then? I had a, um, about an 18-pound recurve bow um, to begin with, nice and easy one to start off with and just, you know, just shot into targets for a long time, just learning how to use that. Um, then slowly progressed to a compound. There used to be a local guy here that used to make his own compound and I used his gear for probably... I know maybe 10 years or so um, I shot that bare bow so I didn't have any sights or anything on the bow then just you know shot by eye and yeah so I was able to get quite a lot of rabbits and stuff with that and learn how to shoot quite well with a bare bow like that and as I started using these newer bows of today they shoot a lot faster. So what are the various components or elements of, of this bow because like I, I, I actually I don't know if I would recognize this as a bow and arrow yeah. let's say right like it looks incredibly technological and newfangled I have to say. It is very, they're very complex yeah. well basically you've got the string at the back there that you, you draw back on once you've got it back to your chin you can look through this little peep sight and there's even a spirit level yep. in so, this sight so you know you've got your bow sitting in the correct position for it to shoot straight so we basically need to be doing everything right to make what we're trying to achieve you know achievable which, which is killing yeah. a, a target or yeah. killing an animal yeah a lot of people just shoot targets but i go i enjoy deer hunting just for the challenge and enjoy eating the meat like we harvest the animals and keep the meat and we quite enjoy the deer meat very nice so so you actually you eat what you hunt yeah yep you know to go deer hunting 85 90 percent of the time we might see them but everything has to be at 110 percent for it and in your favor for it to actually happen successfully for you most of the time with deer hunting um because they're just so switched on the animals are just unbelievable like samba deer that are a lot, a lot of samba in victoria their main predator is tigers so they know how to evade and how to survive, basically. So, you know, they've got massive ears, the size of, like, radar dishes and stuff, so they can hear everything. They're big eyes, they can see everything. So you really have to be switched on to get in close to be able to even have a go at one of those. That in itself is part of the fun that draws me to it, just getting 20 metres from an animal. Your heart starts going flat out, trying to burst out of your chest, and, you know, you just got to calm yourself and settle yourself and sort of make it happen so everything has to work in your favor to get it a shot off at a deer so your dad taught you how to hunt with a bow yeah well he was always into his hunting shooting uh, with guns and stuff as well i've still got a few guns there in the gun safe but they haven't probably been out for six or seven years now because i just predominantly hunt with the bow and, and what is it you enjoy about this i mean you mentioned a little bit about the adrenaline and i guess the the game between you and the animal. So what else do you enjoy about actually hunting? To be honest, I just enjoy being in the bush. I always have as a kid and stuff and love going out fishing and all all those sort of things, just being out there. It just sort of feels like it's where I need and want to be. I I can settle myself out there, don't think about anything else and just sort of focused on enjoying the bush, really. Um, And, yeah, I, you know, taking um, a few foxes here and there, it's always... You feel quite satisfied in shooting foxes, sort of helping out, because foxes destroy a lot of little native animals and stuff and hinder on farmers. It's a little bit of self-achievement, I guess, to a degree. You just feel good shooting foxes and rabbits. You know, if rabbits are not bad to have a chew on to, so... <laughs> so yeah, um, 
They're always handy to. So uh, you got a big freezer for the meat that you do. I have got a bring back. fridge in the in yeah. the shed there. Yeah. So. So you, you actually know a lot about this whole process, right? So not just the hunting side of things. Maybe take me through what happens after you you kill a deer, and and how do you kill it, and and what's that like too? Well, obviously, we we have our um, gear set, so we can. I usually won't shoot over thirty or forty meters. I'll, I'll always try and get that bit closer. And if it doesn't happen, then so be it. They run away. And why do you want to get closer? Well, it's more ethical. Like you just, it's easier to aim for the spot that you need to hit to make it happen fast. So, you know, we aim for a zone which is the heart and lungs behind the front shoulder, and that's you don't aim for any anywhere else with the bows with that. You just aim for that area. So it basically takes out the lungs or the heart, and it happens really fast. And they don't know; they just pass out from blood loss. Basically, basically, we're trying to get that that result every time. Um, and you know you feel bad I, I still feel bad about foxes and rabbits and that I, I just brush off now like doesn't really worry me too much about them because they're little vermin little feral critters but um, the first deer I shot with the antlers good fellow buck I've you know you sit down there next to it and you feel instant remorse you feel bad you're attached like I love deer absolutely love deer as an animal and um, part of the enjoyment is um, sort of getting out amongst them and stuff but you know, the remorse that you feel is quite intense. It's That must be quite extraordinary. Like That's a real paradox, right, or weird, because you, you, they are magnificent beasts. Exactly, yeah. yeah, they're magnificent beasts, and, um, and, and, and I guess you, you kill it. That's, that's what this is all about. And I, I know you're going to eat it as well, so it's not like just wanton sort of wasting, yeah, le- yeah, leaving it there. But that must be really strange. It is, a, and you can't really explain it. And it, you sort of feel that way every time too. Like the challenge and how much work you can put in to try and achieve it, and it all sort of hits you all at once once you've done so it. You really respect the animal. Oh, yeah, big yeah. time. Yeah. But I suppose someone listening to this might go, "Well, if you feel that bad about it, why do you keep doing it?" Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people are a bit biased in the fact that they think you just go down to the supermarket and buy your meat. They don't know what's actually happening to that meat, where it's come from. I don't know 100% what's going on at abattoirs and that, but I know a guy that I've met a few times and he will predominantly just go out and harvest his own meat because of what he's seen. Really? Yeah. So, you know, he's in control of what he basically puts on the table. Um, and how family. it dies, right? Yeah. What, what about people who, say, criticise bow hunters of deer in Australia? I'm sure they probably cop it because it's seen as a blood sport. Um, yeah. What's your reaction to that kind of criticism? There's plenty of cowboys out there that are going, because these aren't licensed, they're not a licensed weapon as yet. You see the young kids or whoever going out and buying one from a gun shop and they go out and shoot a kangaroo and stuff like that, and that really pisses me off. Like It's a serious, serious sport, and it's just doing nothing for the name of bow hunters when these guys go out there and you know stick a, a target arrow into a kangaroo. You know They don't know what they're doing, they're just aiming for any part of the animal, and it's yeah, it's not a good thing. You're listening to Auspicious Plastic, a podcast about precious objects and the stories behind them. Today I'm speaking with Simon. He's a bow hunter from regional Victoria in Australia. What's the longest hunt you've been on? Like, how long have you stalked a deer for? Well, most of mine have happened pretty quick, the ones I have got. My beautiful partner got me a guided hunt up in Queensland a couple of years ago for a week. The deer would come out out of these hills sort of in the morning, go out into the paddocks and feed, and then they'd lay down, bed down in the grass in the paddocks. So we'd basically wait for the wind to be going in a specific direction, try and stalk out 
as close as you could to these deer. Um, there's usually three or four of them together and they'd be bedded down so you get into within 20-25 metres of these deer and just have to wait and basically it was about 8.30 in the morning I suppose and quite up in the middle of Queensland, quite high up in Queensland and it was quite hot already so you're sitting in the middle of this open paddock and I reckon we would have sat there probably two hours at some points we were sitting there for two hours in the sun just in one couple of occasions the wind changed and they were off that was it stalk blown or you know it happens that easy so I was up there for six or seven days I probably had 15 stalks on deer I suppose and I didn't get a deer so there's nothing easy about it. How does that make you feel mm. when you... I learned a lot. I learned a real lot from What'd that. Oh, just aspects of the stalking and stuff like that. And there's just so much to it. You've got to check your wind. You've got to check all sorts of things, you know. Um, there's a lot to it. It's, it's not something you can just start doing, you know, pick up the bow a year ago and successfully go out and hunt deer sort of thing within a year. But, yeah, some people can go out and they'll chase deer every year every weekend sorry and you know they might not get something for four or five years sort of thing so i take it patience is a really big part of this process it is a big part especially on that hunt up there it was because you know you could see the deer just sitting there um and you had to wait for them to stand up move around to be able to have an opportunity to shop but each time little things just went wrong you know a bird at one point scared him or um one one stood up and got a bit edgy, then another one stand up and get edgy. And then I had, I got into a position at one point when I was sort of on my knees because I was mid sort of crawl, um, and they stood up, so I was stuck in that position. And one of my feet dropped into a like a crack in the the earth, like a big hollow hole, and then my leg started going to sleep. So like I was stuck there for forty five minutes in this one position. <laughs> so I'm literally trying to reach around and grab me back of my foot to lift it out with my arm because I couldn't move my leg. <laughs> but um, yeah, there's a lot of patience, there's a lot there's a lot involved in making it happen really. So half the time it's just a really good bushwalk to be honest. Is it a regulated thing, the hunting that you do? It is in some areas. In Victoria you can basically hunt samba and fallow deer at any any stage. There's hog deer down in south east sort of Gippsland but they're, they work on a balloted system down there for most of it. And you have to have a game licence also to go and hunt deer. They're not supposed to be here. Like They're an invasive species as well, the deer in Australia. There's six species of deer in Australia. And, yeah, and they, a lot of farmers aren't happy with deer. They come in and do a lot of damage, especially in the areas where, you know, they're backing onto state forests and stuff and they get a lot of deer coming in. So um, every one week and take it sort of helps a little bit to a farmer, I guess, but... Most people going out there and they're just chasing them for meat these days because it is a very nice meat, venison. So how much does something like this compound bow cost? What's what's its value? The bow, just the bow by itself, this one would be about fifteen, sixteen hundred dollars Quivers. What about the, um, the oh, they're called quivers, the, yeah, the arrows? Yeah. yeah. Uh, this one's probably 200 bucks, around 180 bucks or something like that. And did your dad have a compound bow like this? Um, he did. I remember him having a compound when I was uh, maybe six or seven, I think. But um, he predominantly had recurve bows, like the old traditional stick and string, basically. Yeah. And so tell us a little bit about when you used to go out hunting with your dad. Do you remember the first hunt you went on with him? Um, yeah, we used to go out chasing a few rabbits and stuff. I had a little Perks compound bow, I think, when I was about 35 pounds, maybe. And... 
he'd said, uh, once you get your first rabbit, we'll get you another bow, you can update. Back in the day out where mum and dad lived, wasn't too far up the road to get to the bush and there was a lot of bunnies and stuff around up there. So I used to be able to just walk up the road with my bow in hand and chase rabbits, yeah. So I basically went up there one night and was about 13 and shot this rabbit and I ended up walking home with it on the arrow to show dad so I could get a new bow, basically. <laughs> so, what was his reaction? Oh, he's, he was happy, yeah, for sure. Didn't want to spend money on me getting another bow, but he had to. <laughs> <laughs> and did you hunt with him a lot when you got older? Um... Yeah, probably more so with the guns more than the bows. I've, I've, he used to love going out deer hunting himself, and he never actually shot one in the wild. So that's sort of also part of why I want to do it with a bow too. He introduced me to it, and I suppose to a degree I feel like I'm doing it for him when I'm chasing deer with a bow. So, so you think of your dad when you're out there yeah, sometimes? Yeah, quite a lot. Yeah, um, yeah it, is, it is a big part of it. it. Yeah, it does give you a sense of some kind to that you're relating with them in some way as to something they did or enjoyed. And it's a bit of a bond. There's a bond there, big bond. I guess internally you just feel something whilst you're doing that because they had, they were a big part of it. So, yeah, yeah that's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and what about going out bush for you too? Because it's not just the object, is it? It's actually the whole environment and the context. Yep. Yeah, no, nah, just getting out there. Because um, as I said, I think 90, 95% of the time you probably don't even get to put an arrow on the string. Because yeah, I, I sort of think, I was thinking more about it too, that, you know, it's not just the object, is it? It's the traditions that go with it and yeah. maybe the rituals or the activities yeah. that go with it. Is that, is that what it is for you? Um, him and his mates used to do a, a boys' weekend every Queen's birthday weekend up in, in June up to Yildon, up in the mountains up there. And that was always... That went on for years and years and it was, you know, good times. A bit of a few bullshit stories spoken here and there over the fire and that, but they're always good to listen to. So, yeah, I miss those those little thing, outings as well. Yeah. yeah. And you've got a couple of kids now. They're, they're very little. Um, will you bring them up and teach them how to use this yeah, and teach them yeah, how to hunt? I'm um, interested in it. I will for sure. Um, I'm not going to push it on or anything, but um, I think they'll be more than happy to have a little play, even if it's just for shooting at some targets here and there. But, you yeah, know, I'll definitely try and pass on a bit of what I know as well. And as I said, most of it is just being out in the bush. That's basically it. That's it for another episode of Auspicious Plastic. Huge thanks to my guest or guests for their time and willingness to share their ideas and stories about the things that they love. And massive thanks also to gifted music composer and musician Jeremy Conlon, a.k.a. Cooper Black, for creating the auspicious music theme for this podcast. You can find the full complement of his music online at cooperblack.bandcamp.com. And if you'd like to share your story with me or get in touch, please email me at hello at themeganspencer.com or you can visit my website, themeganspencer.com. And thank you too, auspicious listener. I'm grateful for your time, attention and feedback. My name's Megan Spencer and you've been listening to Auspicious Plastic. It's a podcast made about precious objects, made with love and dedicated to my mother Margaret. Until next time.